Hello, everyone, and welcome to today's Safety and Health webcast, How Brain-Centered Hazards Impact Serious Injury and Fatality Exposures, sponsored by DACRA Organizational Safety and Reliability. My name is Barry Botino. I'm an associate editor with Safety and Health Magazine, and I'll be moderating today's session. Thanks so much for joining us. In a few minutes, we'll start the presentation, but first I'd like to go over some preliminary items. The views of today's speakers and organizations are their own and do not necessarily reflect those of the National Safety Council or Safety and Health Magazine. Any mention of a commercial enterprise, product, or publication does not mean the council or the magazine endorses those items. Throughout this presentation and at the end of today's session, our speakers will be answering questions from the audience in a Q&A session. To ask a question at any time today, simply type it in the text box in the lower left-hand corner of your screen and click the button for Submit Question. We'll try to answer as many questions as possible, both during and after the presentation, but because of the large number of attendees today, we might not get to everyone's question. Any unanswered questions, however, will be forwarded along to today's speakers. For basic troubleshooting information, please check out the handy guide on the right-hand side of your screen or click the Help button. At the end of the webcast, you'll be asked to complete a brief evaluation survey, but I'll let you know more about that after the presentation. This webcast is archived, so you can access it after today's live event. To view this webcast and all of our past webcasts, please visit us online today at safetyandhealthmagazine.com events. With that, let's go ahead and get started. Our speakers today are Don Martin and Rajni Walia. Don is the Senior Vice President at DACRA OSR. During his 40-year career, Don has built a wealth of expertise in the design and implementation of environmental health and safety management systems, risk management programs, fatality prevention programs, and organizational culture change initiatives for companies around the globe. Rajni serves as Vice President at Dacre OSR and is the Senior Leader within the organization's Brain-Centric Reliability Team. She is recognized in the industry as a premier thought leader in the areas of performance management, organizational assessment and development, and human error reduction. Again, we thank all of you for tuning in today to this presentation. Rajni, whenever you're ready, go ahead and get us started. Fantastic. Thank you, Barry, and thank you to everyone for attending um, Don and I's webinar today on how brain-centered hazards impact serious injury and fatality exposure. We thank you for your time, and I know Dave, Don and I are extremely excited to be here with you guys today. So the topics that we're, the discussion topics that we're going to go through today are these three things. So we're going to discuss vulnerability to brain-centered hazards. I'll talk more about what brain-centered hazards are and how they've arrived or how we've derived at the, at the list that we have, but we will talk about how we're, we're vulnerable to those as well as recognize how brain-centered hazards contribute to serious injuries and fatalities, which is where Dawn's expertise is extremely um, valuable. So we're going to talk about how the two are connected as well as uh, finish off with some strategies on how to prevent brain-centered hazards from becoming life-altering events within any organization. So, Don, I'm going to throw it over to you to talk us through this uh, graph and why this topic really matters. Great. Thank you very much, Rajni. I really appreciate the nice introduction. And so let's have a look at this graph. Uh, uh, hopefully, many of you have already seen this graph. 
And, and the points uh, that are important here are these. So the black line uh, shows the recordable injury rate in the United States over the last 23 or 24 years. The red line uh, shows the rate of occurrence of fatal work accidents over the same time period in the United States. And the important things to notice about these two lines is, number one, the recordable injury uh, improvement line has a nice improving trend to it. Uh, you can see it started off at eight and a half, currently down to a little bit less than three. And this is a nice improvement curve. The fatality rate tells a different story. Uh, it showed some slight improvement uh, from five to about 3.5, but over the last 10 years, it's essentially been flat. In other words, not improving. And so we've been studying this issue for the last several years and trying to answer that question about why is that fatality rate line not improving uh, much more than it, than it currently is. And part of the answer uh, to this uh, lies in these brain-centered hazards and how they set us up for uh, fatal accident exposure. And uh, as a uh, safety professional, and I'm sure many of you are safety professionals as well, uh, this, this red fatality line has got to be concerning. It's something that I know that we have the capability of improving and changing, and it's frustrating uh, when you see this, uh, this data show up year after year as not improving. So let's have a look at uh, how these brain-centered hazards uh, contribute to this uh, fatality line and, and how we can get ahead of that curve. Thank you. All right, thank you, Don. And absolutely, the the red line is is um, is really concerning. And so, when we look at the statistics, what we actually are seeing is that 70 to 80 percent of serious injuries and high consequence accidents across all industries, so it's not just industry specific, across all industries, have identified human error as a root or contributing factor. Now, Don did mention it's these brain-centered hazards, but often what we see in, in the clients that in the clients that I consult with, they they underpin the, the the real root causes being human error related. But what does that mean? Does it mean that individuals uh, willingly are getting going to get themselves hurt? It absolutely doesn't. It means that there's more that is to be understood in terms of how the human operates, because the way the human brain operates. We are, we are uh, prone to make these errors, and there's, there is something to do with the way we're wired, and so I'm going to talk a little bit about, more about these, but before I do that, I'd like to, I believe there's a poll question that uh, I'm going to ask Barry to take us through. Yes, Rajni, we do have a, our first opportunity to learn about our audience today. Uh, folks will be seeing a poll question shortly on their screen. We want to know a little bit more about your organizations today. Uh, we'll give you about 30 seconds to choose one of our five possible answers today. And our question is, how does your organization label the topic of why humans make mistakes? Uh, the choices are complacency, lack of ability, human error, human performance reliability, and finally, my organization doesn't have a label for this. So we'll give everyone a few more seconds. Uh, we're getting some great feedback so far. So thank you all for your votes. And we'll give it a couple more seconds here and close out our poll. And what we're seeing today is um, we have our top answer here is human error, 32.9%, followed by 
followed by complacency at 24.3%. Um, so Rajni, what are your thoughts about how our audience members uh, described how their organizations handle this topic? Yeah, it's really interesting. It's an interesting divide, Barry, and I, I could see you're, when you're going through it, it's like you're trying to identify which one was the highest. It, it really is an interesting divide. So human error has come in at 32%. I, I, the slide that I showed you before said that 70 to 80% of incidents are related to human error. So I, it, what it begs to sort of ask is let's go it – needs, we need to go deeper than that. And I see complacency in human error – um, the lack of ability, and often we look at incident, incident investigations all the time. And so when it comes down to it, is it that the individual willingly made a mistake, or is it that the individual had the lack of ability, or that they were simply complacent? And I would say it's actually more, um, more related to the one of human performance reliability, which is how we look at it. And it comes down to these uh, these seven brain-centered hazards which I'm going to take you through. And, and these seven brain-centered hazards have essentially evolved because what we know is we've, we've looked at uh, neuroscience and, and DECRA has applied recent neuroscience research to the workplace and identified that these seven brain-centered hazards make everybody vulnerable to, and unless we understand our brains better and how to detect and control these hazards, they will cause a critical performance error. All of these seven, in some way or shape or form, will cause critical performance errors, and, and these really are the reasons why we see the number of human error uh, percentages being so high. The 70 to 80 percent is really attributed to these uh, seven brain-centered hazards. So real briefly, I'll, I'll go through each of the seven, and then what we're going to do is Don and I will go deeper into each one and share with you real examples of how these have created serious injury and fatality potential. So fast brain functioning, that's the first one. It says they're conducting important tasks without conscious thought and reliance on habit. Essentially, we know, we all know that we're, or we've probably heard the term, we're creatures of habit, and we absolutely are. So the fast brain functioning is related to our reliance and tendency to, to rely on these habits. So anytime we do something over and over, it becomes, it almost becomes a fast brain behavior. So I'll talk more about that in just a minute. Visual recognition is missing important information due to the human vision system. Our eyes will often play tricks on us, and I'll explain why and how they, it does that. But we're, our brain has a sort of strong connection to see. Uh, but what we know is that there are huge limitations in how we actually see. So we often see what's right in front of us, and we're often missing what's below our knees and above our heads, which cause, um, causes us to miss a lot of information, a lot of exposure. Divided attention is essentially our inability to multitask. We just cannot do it, even though we may think we are juggling between two things and we're, we're, we've perfected the fact that we can multitask, we actually cannot. We know that your rate of error it goes up the more things that you're, you're trying to look at and the more that you're trying to take in. So we know there is a strong correlation between the more things that we try to do, the more the error rate goes up. And hence, we just cannot simply, we can't multitask. Memory is the fact that our, our brain has a tendency to rely on, on the memory system. Memory is the precise reason why organizations have procedures, checklists, other types of devices or tools to help people 
uh, think through a, pro- a process or, a, you know, a, a procedure or steps within a procedure because we know we have, we, when we are left to our own device, our memory is imprecise. And we tend to remember what we want to remember, and we and our me- recollection of it actually gets stronger as we go. So there's a there's a reliance on our memory and our memory system is actually not as great as we think it is. Social think is another reason why these we we have a tendency to make errors, and this is all to do with a part of the brain that's called the social brain. And essentially, what we have is we have an innate ability to want to go along to get along. We all want to fit in. We all want to, we don't, we, we don't want to be the odd person that um, tells somebody that they're doing something wrong. In fact, if we're a supervisor, if we're a manager, it actually feels uncomfortable to give people bad news. And so if you're finding that, you know, you're, you don't like giving bad news, it's, it's all related to the social brain because we want to be seen as being sort of part of the group, part of the tribe, so to speak. Fatigue is a hidden we know that's a hidden precursor to serious injury and fatality. A lot of organizations, while they have data, they don't they don't look at the data as well as they should. So you, I, I'm sure you have a, a policy in place for alcohol and drug-related things, but fatigue is often not there. Simply asking somebody whether they're fit to work is, is, is not enough, and so I'm going to talk about that a little bit more. Stress and urgency as well. So when we feel any kind of stress and urgency, recognize that some of it comes from within. But when we feel a sense of our stress and urgency, essentially it's blocking our cognition. And we are, at that point, just reacting. So these seven brain centered hazards, while they're in, independent, they are inter, interdependent within, with one, within one of them. So it, within any given incident, uh, we can actually start to pinpoint where these seven brain centered hazards are manifested in that, in that one specific incident. So looking more closely at each one of these. So let's look at fast brain functioning. What we know is that what we can sort of be sure of is that when our brain loves to conserve energy, and if you do something frequently enough, it will become a fast brain behavior. The challenge is that we don't decide when that will happen. So you can see on the screen, we're in fast brain mode as much as 50% of the time, but we don't actually know when, when and where this will happen. So the photo that's on the slide that you're seeing is a, is, a, is a gentleman driving. That's a classic example because we've all, I'm sure, all of us on the call have our, our drives and we drive fairly often. And if you've had that experience of driving from one place to another and not recognizing how you got there, chances are it's become a fast brain behavior. Now, think of all of the things that you do within your workplace that you do often enough that is all that have also become faster in behavior. So that's where it becomes a challenge. So we know on the road there's a, a, a lot of incidents that happen on the road, a lot of accidents that happen on the road. But next to that, the most the place that we we spend a lot of time is at the work in the workplace. And so if we're doing something frequently enough, regardless of how dangerous or hazardous it is, we have, it, there's a strong tendency that it might become a fast brain behavior. Don, would you like to share some examples of how you've seen this in, um, in, in terms of serious injuries and fatalities? Don? Yes, thank you, Rajni, for uh, for describing 
the uh, the scientific basis behind uh, what fast brain functioning is all about. Uh, and if you think about uh, the severity of this uh, of this uh, brain hazard, think about the uh, uh, statistics related to work related fatalities in the United States. Twenty five percent of all work related fatalities occur in over the road motor vehicle accidents. So if you if you think about uh, what Rajni just said, about 50% of the time we're operating in fast brain mode. And what that means is our behaviors are automatic, they're habitual, uh, they don't have a lot of thought or deliberation behind them. It's just something that your, your brain has decided to save energy and they're gonna automatically do these behaviors. And behind the wheel of a vehicle, think about all of the uh, distractions and and exposures you can face while you're operating that vehicle. And take it to the workplace. Uh, look at a, a a routine procedure in safety, such as issuing a confined space entry permit. And a, a typical uh, permit rider may have uh, six or seven steps that they follow in sequence uh, to issue that permit. And those steps could involve things like conducting an interview of the crew to find out the significance of the job, testing the oxygen level, uh, testing the gas levels for uh, LEL, uh, entering the data on the permit, uh, checking the rescue equipment to make sure it's ready to go, and then signing the permit. Now imagine a a, a permit uh, writer who has to do uh, 20 of these spaces in one day. And it's very easy to see how that activity could become automatic or fast brain. And every once in a while, they could actually skip a step. So and a critical step that they might skip would be uh, overlooking the percent LEL. So just doing the oxygen, skipping over the LEL, and then signing and issuing the permit. And then an, an event happens, and then we go back uh, later, and we find out that the uh, lower explosive limit was never uh, tested or detected. And then we wonder why, and most of the time it's because that that, uh, that person has entered into this uh, this fast brain mode to execute this critical task, and they and they simply overlooked a, a task after uh, doing it so many times. So a couple of examples there about how uh, fast brain functioning can create an SIF exposure at work. Fantastic, thank you, Don. Now, let's talk about visual recognition. Visual recognition, in effect, is, is the, our brain's tendency to see with our brain, not with our eyes. So what does that mean? That means that most of, essentially, most of our brain is devoted to the human system, vision system. So it's important to recognize that the way we see uh, with our brains, and, and essentially, when we're wanting to see something, our brains will look for just that. So there's a, there's a bias that we have that's called the expectations bias. When I have an expectation that I'm going to see something and that, say, I'm, I'm doing rounds and I'm looking at a certain valve, if there's an expectation that, that those valves always have the, the right reading and that they, you know, they're always, it's always uh, in, in working order, that's essentially what I'm going to see, even though the, the reading itself might say something different. So Don will share a couple more examples, but... When our brain, and you know, what we need to understand is that our eyes will often trick us, and our brains will often trick us into seeing what we want to see, and even though what might be before us is something completely different. 
Don, would you like to share a couple of examples? Sure. Yeah, we had uh, uh, several uh, events that we did involve in investigations, and one of them involved uh, working at height. And uh, so uh, uh, there were a couple of workers up on a uh, platform, an elevated platform, and uh, they were uh, supposed to be attaching their uh, lanyards uh, to uh, to their D rings on their on their fall arrest harness, and uh, one of their responsibilities is to look at each other to make sure that the lanyards are connected to the D ring, and uh, one of the one of the workers looked at the other one and was absolutely certain that he saw it connected, but in fact it was not connected. And, and this was due to the fact that, you know, they, they, these guys work together hundreds and hundreds of times. They do these observations hundreds of times. And he was expecting to see it connected when in reality the evidence showed that it was not. And uh, yet his, in, his, in his mind, he thought it, it was 100% uh, connected. Uh, we had, uh, going back to a, a confined space entry uh, 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 event, um, the, the permit rider uh, was so accustomed to seeing 21% oxygen that his brain basically started predicting that every time he uh, was going to do a permit, every time he did his oxygen test, he was always going to see uh, 21%. And in this one time, it was actually 16%, but he, but he was absolutely convinced it was 21%, even though the data on the meter clearly showed 16%, and what had happened was that there was some nitrogen uh, displacement going on in this confined space, and he incorrectly interpreted that reading to be 21% when in actuality it was 16, and had he recognized the 16%, he would have pursued a, another course of investigation to determine the cause of that. Um, I, had a, I had an event, uh, you know, an outside-of-work event uh, a couple of years ago where I do a lot of bicycle riding on the roads and I was riding in a brand new neighborhood and uh, somebody stopped me and said, did you know you just, you just blew past a stop sign? And, and, I, and I was shocked to understand that I had actually run through a stop sign in this, in this neighborhood at an intersection and I went back to look at it and it turned out that in this particular neighborhood, they had painted all of the stop signs green so that it would be aesthetically pleasing with the environment in this neighborhood. And, and I was expecting to see a red stop sign. So when I, when I did not see red, it never entered uh, my brain or my body that I should be slowing down at this, uh, at this intersection. So uh, my, my, I was predicting what I was going to be seeing. And, and if that person had asked me, you know about about a stop sign obviously i said i did not see it but it was right there in front of my eyes and then we have you know cases and and y'all have probably had experiences with these as well in, in a warehouse with powered industrial trucks forklifts that uh, here's a powered industrial truck operator who uh is driving the same routes and and doing just-in-time deliveries and and things like that and approaches an intersection where there is an, it's a four-way intersection and there's a stop and a yield sign and and every time he goes through this intersection there's never ever a human being ever in that area um, and so he, he starts to predict every time he goes to the intersection that there's no human being there well on the morning of this near miss uh, they had a crew meeting 
and the foreman uh, advised everybody that there were going to be some engineers in the warehouse that day doing some type of inventory project and they would be wearing orange reflector vests and that they should all be on the lookout for for these uh, engineers well one of these engineers was uh, standing really close to this intersection and actually he was in the intersection and the powered industrial uh, truck driver saw him at the very last minute and slammed his brakes on and swerved to avoid him and when we interview the PIT operator, he's saying that he never ever saw the uh, the pedestrian in in the uh, walkway in the in in the intersection. Yet when you look at the videotape of this warehouse, the aisles were very clear, very wide, and you had a full length view of this aisle, and you could see that person, that engineer, standing there in that intersection for at least three or four minutes as the fork truck was approaching him. So from the videotape evidence, you know, we're looking at it saying, how could he possibly not see uh, this pedestrian, this, this engineer, when his eyes are up, his head is up, and he's looking forward, how could he possibly not see him? And it was because for thousands of times that he's gone through this intersection, there's never been a human. So he was his brain was already predicting uh, what was going to be there. And so he, he in, in his mind's eye, so to speak, he, he never saw this person. So those are a few of the examples that show how this uh, visual recognition hazard can create SIF exposures. Thank you, Dan. Those are really interesting examples. I wanted to share a question that's come in from our audience. Uh, Jean asks a question regarding the statistics that we talked about earlier about serious injuries and high-consequence accidents. Um, and Jean asks, how do we define a serious injury and high-consequence injuries. How do we define those two? The, uh, what we call, sure, what we call, what we call uh, serious injuries, we also may refer to them as life-threatening or life-altering, and that is uh, the injury was so severe uh, that it permanently affected uh, that person's life, basically for the rest of their life. And that, and that would include things like a, a, a loss of a limb, loss of eyesight, uh, loss of an essential uh, body organ or an essential body function. That's the consequence of the event. We also have events that are life-threatening in the sense that uh, if it, when the event happened, uh, the person was severely uh, injured and, and emergency rescue services were required and had those services not been provided, then the person very likely uh, could have uh, died. And, and what we're looking at uh, are events that have the potential to cause those consequences. And so this is a very important uh, distinguishing characteristic when we talk about high-consequence events. You're looking at the whole context of the exposure situation and asking the question, is it reasonable and realistic that one factor could have changed and the actual outcome would have been very different? So it could have gone from being a first aid or a property damage near miss it could have resulted in a fatality if one thing had changed and it was reasonable and realistic that it, that it could have. So that, that, that's our view on what a, a serious injury is, what a life-altering or life-threatening event is, and the potential 
for one of those consequences to occur is what we look for. Thank you, Don. All right, thank you, Don, and thank you, Barry, for the question and the audience member who asked that question. Now, let's look at distractions. Now, distractions are what a lot of us are facing, uh, probably more than we did prior to the pandemic that we're experiencing right now. So now we're distracted by the media. We're working from home. We have new workmates in that. We're probably working around our kids and our loved ones, plus all the work-related distractions that we're experiencing. And what is really important to note about divided attention is that when a person is distracted or interrupted during tasks, it takes them two times longer to accomplish that task. And you may have found that this has happened to you if you're trying to write an email, write an article, respond to an incident, whatever you're trying to do. Essentially, if you're distracted and your mind is taken off the task, it takes two times longer to complete that. And you're actually two times more likely to make an error. Now, what we know in terms of distractions, as I mentioned right now, we're experiencing a lot of distractions. And it's important to recognize that these distractions, unless we sort of take hold and have strategies to, to, to prevent them from, from really taking in, um, impacting our work, it's going to play in. And so we have to be really careful when we, when we look at these, um, these, the divided attentions. Don, would you like to share some examples of how these have manifested into incidents? Uh, sure. Uh, I have, a, have an event that, that we investigated uh, several years ago that involved a, uh, a rail car uh, that literally exploded. And, and the reason for the explosion is that the, that the plant was manufacturing uh, a, a chemical that was basically an acrylic monomer, and it's in liquid state. And in order for the uh, monomer to stay liquid, uh, you have to add an inhibitor to the rail car. And this inhibitor chemical, you know, keeps it in liquid state. In the absence of the inhibitor, uh, the liquid will begin to polymerize, and that causes a significant uh, buildup of pressure and release of, of high energy. And on the day in question, uh, the operator was loading a whole series of rail cars with this inhibitor and he got he was finishing up one rail car and the last four numbers on this rail card were 2204 the next rail car in line was 2240 so the the four and the zero were were uh, inverted but what happened was after he finished uh putting the inhibitor in rail car 2204 uh, he got interrupted, uh, and he was uh, responding to a contractor who was looking for a valve. So the contractor said, hey, I'm looking for this particular valve out in the plant. Can you show me where it is? So he left his station, uh, went and got out a, a drawing, uh, mapped it out for him, and showed him where it was. And when he left his station, he had uh, inadvertently written down the incorrect uh, car number. He wrote down 40 instead of 04. So when he got back to his uh, inhibitor station, uh, the, the rail car that was next up in line was 4-0, did not have the inhibitor in it. He thought it did, and he sent it out into the rail car in the rail yard where about uh, two days later it subsequently exploded. And so here was a situation where just this one small distraction uh, divided uh, this operator's attention 
uh, resulting in a in a catastrophic event. And that that's the that's the one story I wanted to share with that one, Rajni. Thank you, Don. That's a that's yeah. I mean, it certainly does happen when when we are distracted. Essentially, our mind is taken off what we're trying to do, and it's really hard to to go back to where we were and, and exactly where, where, where we left off. Now, stress and urgency, you can see there on this slide, stressors don't make people sick. Our ongoing response to stress and urgency leads to diseases that make us sick. So, so long-term stress can have huge implications, huge health implications. But even in the short-term stress, again, this is similar to the divided attention and distractions where we're experiencing a lot of, a lot of stress and urgency right now because there's a... There's a lot that's unknown in terms of this pandemic. There's a lot that we, there's a lot of uncertainty right now. And so what we need to do is, uh, is similar to distractions. We need to take hold and recognize what are those things that are that are causing us to be stressed out. Now the other thing is when we are stressed out, what's really important to remember is our tendency and our reliance sort of to default the habit gets much stronger. When we're stressed out, we're not thinking. They, the part of the brain that does all of our thinking, which is the prefrontal cortex, essentially it, we're not rationalizing, we're not thinking rationally when, when something is happening. So we are, um, we're essentially, we're, we're defaulting to habit. So I, yeah, that's the part that I'd like to share on, on stress and urgency and sort of the implications of that. Don, would you like to share a couple sure. of examples here? Uh, sure, so take, take an example in a, in a production environment a factory where uh, for two days in a row, uh, production is down. So we're off schedule. And so it's the third day of the week, and our, our management team has stressed the, uh, the, the importance and the urgency of getting back on schedule. So here's the third day, and we're going to make up all of our production losses for the previous two days. Now, at the same time, this company has a very important principle around reporting uh, near misses and also exercising stop work authority if safety conditions are not right. Now, what happens here is that the, the workers who are involved in catching up on the production, this important behavior of reporting a near miss or exercising stop work authority, they have very quickly calculated that they're not gonna be able to do that today. So. In this particular uh, instance, an event did happen that would have required exercise of stop work authority, but the workers chose to let the situation pass over so that they could maintain uh, their urgent uh, need to get production back online, and, and a severe event happened. And then uh, another example uh, would be uh, if, a, if a very critical piece of equipment uh, goes out of production and needs to be repaired so that we can get it back online and get it back into production. Uh, when, we, when management uh, stresses the urgency of getting that uh, uh, pump back into production mode, uh, what could happen and what did happen in a particular event is the, the, the crew skipped over their pre-startup safety review, so they conducted their repairs on the pump. Uh, they have done this successfully many times in the past uh, with no issues during the pre-startup safety review, and so they were able to save themselves 45 more minutes uh, in, in production time 
uh, by skipping over the pre-startup safety review. And what happened was they they ended up missing a critical feature uh, for the safe startup, and and a and a portion of the pump actually exploded and split apart uh, because they skipped over that step. If they had done that step, uh, they they would have detected that deficiency and would have uh, put a, a better control in place before they started up. So that uh, that move uh, for urgency and stress uh, created uh, some shortcuts in normal uh, safety protection processes. So how about memory? Perfect. So in terms of our memory system, what we know is that our memory itself is quite unstable. Our, even our, our recall of something, an event that is quite significant, even if you take 9-11 as an example, we all have an altered sort of memory from the, the day of what we, what we, what we remember, so from the actual event to what we recall now, even that has probably changed quite significantly. And we know confidence is also a poor predictor of memory accuracy. And the more, the more, we, uh, the more we recall them, and it would actually makes us more confident. So the, our memory, so essentially what happens is over time, when we think back to something, we will we'll become more confident that our, our memory of that event has, is, is what it is. So recalling memory alters them, and we become more sort of confident in our recall of that memory, if that makes sense. So um, our memory system, this is the reason why we have procedures, checklists, all sorts of things, and uh, it's all to do with the, the memory system. Don, examples? Over to you. Sure. So, uh, sure. So we had we had a case where an operator uh, in a refinery was closing a series of valves on a pipeline uh, and needed to do them in the correct order, uh, so that when the work was being done at the end of the pipeline, that there would be no residual chemical uh, in the system. And in this particular day, uh, the operator went out into the field to do these valve closings and forgot to bring the checklist with him when he uh, left the control room. And so he, at that point, he was, he was invested in this job, so he had a bit of a, a sunk cost bias going on because it's quite a distance out to this, uh, this pipeline and was relying on his memory. Since he had done this job so many times, he figured that he could just remember the proper sequencing of valves to close. And, and in fact, uh, he made a an error and uh, closed the uh, valves in the wrong sequence, which left a significant uh, quantity of hazardous chemical in the system. And so uh, when the workers uh, were doing their pipe opening procedure, they were sprayed uh, with hazardous chemical. Uh, fortunately, everybody had slicker suits on and that type of thing, but the event still happened. And it was classified as a, a significant near miss. But again, you know, relying on, on memory to do a critical uh, safety task uh, can sometimes uh, create uh, dire consequences. Thank you, Don. Thanks, Don, for that uh, example. Sure. I wanted to share a question that had come in from the audience. Um, Rajni, I'll jump in here. Uh, we have an audience sure. question that comes in. Don, you talked about um, you know, someone doing a task day after day, and uh, Steve in our audience asks about um, let's say someone is, is doing the same task day after day with no bad outcome, then one particular uh, day they result results in a bad outcome because of something not within their control. Uh, why is that action good one day and an error the next uh, simply after a bad outcome? 
Yeah, that's an interesting question that, that you know, sometimes it's it's a, an, a bad outcome that gets the attention, but sometimes if we look at the task that the person was doing, uh, the the task was behaviorally deficient, or in other words, uh, what they were doing and the sequence they were doing it in was inaccurate or incorrect all along, but it just so happened that nothing bad happened uh uh, as a result, and then one day the bad result happens, uh, and then we wonder, you know, how that how that happened. And we we call that an SIF, a serious injury fatality precursor. And what that means is the precursor has been there all along. It's just that it took it uh, happened today to result in a in a negative outcome. And we can see that in driving behaviors all the time, where where people drive their cars a certain way every single day. And maybe their driving behaviors are really not as safe or, or efficient as they should be, and and nothing ever happens. But then one day uh, a, a negative outcome happens, uh, and we never we never saw that the buildup to it, these precursors have been there all along, and and we should have been able to detect them earlier and intervene earlier. Thank you, Dan. All right, thank you, Barry, for asking the question, and thank you, Don, for the response. Now, the, in terms of the social sink hazard, now, where that comes in is it really is these two things that are on the slide. People think when it comes to sort of intervening, it becomes it's uncomfortable for people to intervene. And why is that is because there's actually a part of the brain that, that releases chemicals. So the minute you're, you're, you have either a bad message to delay or you're trying to tell someone that, that they should consider doing something differently. Parts of the, the, the brain starts to release chemicals that make it feel uncomfortable. So chemi- the same chemicals that we fire as if you're, they were starting to feel sort of physically threatened. So where people sort of go to is they think, well, you know what, look, it's not my job. It's not my, uh, my role expectation to say something. Or the other aspect is, look, I may be wrong. Uh, I may say something, but this person has been around for a lot longer than I have, so they're a lot more experienced than I am, and therefore I may be wrong. And so with that, there's a hesitation to speak up. There's a hesitation to say something. And, what, and it goes back to sort of what I started off with is we want to we fit in. We want to be in an organization where we're seen as somebody who can contribute. We don't like... And therefore, we have a tendency not to give bad news, not to say something when we see something. A lot of organizations that I work with actually have a um, sort of a program that if you say see something, you say something. But what we're finding is that people don't. Why? It's because it's all related to the social think hazard. And an yeah, example of that. In with uh, a question. Oh. oh, I'm sorry, Don. I wanted to jump in a quick no, question ahead, from our audience about, about this slide here. Um, somebody's asking about the differences between social think and fast brain functioning. Uh, Rajni, I'm wondering if you can comment on that for us. Absolutely. So the two, they have some reliance, some sort of uh, relatability. They're, they actually are the, from the same part of the brain. So the fast brain functioning is all to do with habits and our reliance on habits, whereas the social think hazard is to do with the social brain, which is how, what am I going to say when I see someone? It becomes sort of the interaction between two or more people. So 
So in a group setting, that's where the social social brain or social think hazard would come in, where the fast brain functioning is to do with all of our reliance sort of on habits, the things that we do day in, day out. So hopefully that has helped sort of clarify the, the two. Great, thank you. And if I could give a couple of examples of how this uh, plays out in the workplace, we, we investigated a, a rigging and lifting incident uh, where a five-ton load uh, was dropped uh, due to some incorrect uh, uh, rigging practices. And what happened was if you, if you, when we interviewed the crew, uh, three of the crew members were experienced uh, journeymen, and one of the crew members was a new apprentice that had just completed rigging school. And uh, when we interviewed the, the new person, what he said was, I, I just learned how to do this rigging process and this rigging technique, and I knew that it was wrong. I knew that the way it was set up was incorrect, but I'm the new guy here, and it's, I, I don't have the, the ability or the, or the social contract with my peers to tell them that they're wrong. And so, so he, he observed what was going on, knew it was wrong, didn't feel that he had the license to step in and say something. And, and then a, 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 a crash uh, drop load uh, resulted because of that. Uh, I myself, I, I had an event uh, last year, uh, pre-pandemic uh, in downtown Chicago where uh, I was walking to an office building and I was following the crowd at these intersections. So at every intersection, there's a, a cross light that a crosswalk light that lights up that says it's safe to cross the intersection. And uh, I noticed that at this one particular intersection, uh, the the light was still red for pedestrians, and yet the 40 or 50 people in front of me started walking across. And my immediate thought was, well, they're all locals. They work here. They know this intersection. They know it better than I do. They must know it's safe. And so I started following the crowd across the intersection. And I had taken maybe three steps, and this uh, this nice person behind me grabbed the strap on my briefcase and pulled me back up on the sidewalk, sidewalk and said, no, wait. And And when I looked up, there was a car. Uh, that was coming uh, right next to the curb, and it would have hit me uh, had I stayed uh, in contact with the back of that crowd. And and luckily, uh, this this other person saw what was happening, but I was caught up in this whole social think environment where I knew that the people in front of me knew better than I did. And and I even though I saw the the red light and I knew I shouldn't be crossing. I was caught up in what they were doing and didn't want to be the only person left standing on the on the sidewalk. So these examples uh, are are pretty frequent, uh, more frequently I think uh, than than we know them than we see them. So, Rosny? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. They are more frequent than we, than we'd like to believe even. Now, the last brain-centered hazard which we'll cover off before we go into strategies and what we can do and start doing about these hazards um, is, is looking at fatigue. So fatigue is really a sort of a hidden hazard that we don't even, we don't, we, we often don't recognize or do anything about. So what you can see on this graph here is that the number of work hours per day over the number of consecutive days. 
So if we're working 12-hour shifts after three days is when we're going to hit the fatigue zone. So what we need to do is we need to recognize sort of organizations and think through what their shift work is like and whether are they working a combination of eight to 12-hour days, and if so, are they requiring people to work more than four and a half days, consecutive days? So after a certain period of time, this is what you need your brain sort of body and brain and body needs to rest. The other element of fatigue is cognitive fatigue, which is the amount of uh, deep sleep that we're getting. So we know there's a link between error rate and the amount of sleep that we get. For instance, if we're sleeping less than six and a half hours, we're, we're two times more likely to make an error. If we're sleeping less than five and a half hours, we're five times more likely to, to make an error. And what we're finding sort of over in terms of sleep and then the amount of people are sleeping over through the years, we're sleeping less and less um, in, in, in terms of the overall hours of sleep. So it causes us to not recognize things that are right before us. And the challenge, real challenge with fatigue is we don't recognize our own dysfunction. The more fatigued we are, the less we're sort of able to pick up on what's actually happening in reality. And if it becomes so severe, then our brain will take over and say, look, I'm going to put you into a micro-sleep, and I'm going to, I'm going to get you the, the amount of sleep that you need. And so where that might happen is on the road, at work. And so essentially your, your eyes are, your brain is in, in a deep sleep, but it looks like you're, you're, you're wide awake. So um, a real challenge, um, Donna, and I'm sure you have some excellent examples to share here. Yes, and in the uh, in the utility sector, we recently investigated an, an event where uh, there was an emergency power restoration going on. So bad weather uh, shut down a lot of the utilities, and uh, this one uh, person was uh, basically at the at the 19 hour mark, and probably two or three days into their uh, emergency work, but had worked 19 consecutive hours. Uh, got a call to go to a job. Uh, after we interviewed him, he said, I, I, this is normally a two-person job, and I know it's a two-person job, but I was so fatigued that I forgot that it was a two-person job. So when I got there, I, I forgot to wait for the second person to show up in order to do the job safely, and then I put myself and, and the customer at risk. Uh, and so that fatigue state can cause you to forget an important uh, step that needs to be followed. Uh, we also investigated an incident where a crew had been had worked 30 consecutive 12 to 14 hour days, and uh, at the end of this turnaround, uh, they they had gotten to where they were just uh, ignoring uh, alarms. So alarms would go on, and they would just assume that they were uh, false alarms, and they would bypass them so they wouldn't have to listen to them. And so they were downplaying the significance of, of the alarm. And it was their, their fatigue state, and it caused them to do that and caused them to uh, make a lot of other errors in how they were uh, conducting their pre-startup safety review. And so this uh, fatigue is one of those uh, well-hidden hazards that can have significant consequences. And I think we have a, a poll question coming up at this point. And that we do, Don. Yeah. Uh, move it. Go ahead. I'm sorry, Rajni. No, no, no. You can. Sorry, I was just going to say. Yeah, there's a there's a poll question. 
All right. We want to know a little bit more about everyone's organizations out there today. So our question here uh, in the second poll question of our presentation is, uh, what mitigation strategies does your organization currently have in place? And we've got three different responses for you, three specific responses. And we're also offering as responses all of the above, none of the above, or I don't know how to determine. So there's six possible answers here for you. And we'll give everybody about 10 more seconds or so to get your submissions in. And again, we've got some excellent feedback coming in. This is a really responsive group today, so thank you everyone for the responses. And now we will close out our poll and move forward to see the results here. And it looks as though our uh, all of the above is by far our top answer. Um, so Don and Rajni, does anything surprise you about um, how our audience members are describing their organizations with this question? Well, I'm impressed for one. I, I think it's yeah. I think it's fantastic that that uh, that everybody is. I know so many people are familiar with these uh, ad advancements in uh, safety management, and nice to see that so many folks are doing all three of the the, the top uh, strategies. I fully agree, Don. That that was my my initial reaction as well. Is that that's fantastic that uh, that all of these strategies are being implemented. If you if for the folks that have said none of the above and don't know, we're about to share with you some strategies that you may consider. So, uh, Don, would you like to to go through the first part of this, and then I'll I'll kick over for the last part. Um, sure. Um, so when we talk about prevention strategies. Uh, we like to think about it in terms of layers of protection or, or layers of defense. And so we've adapted the uh, Swiss cheese model to illustrate this point. And, and at the far left, uh, the first several boxes are really all about prevention through design. And what we're looking for is, are we doing a good job as an organization in anticipating the uh, significant uh, hazards that we might be facing in our workplaces. So are we doing uh, HSE reviews in, in part of our uh, design? So prevention through design uh, allows us, if you think about hierarchy of controls, what we're looking at is you know, eliminating the hazards, substituting for something safer, or employing engineering designs that will protect the worker. And what we find is that the higher up in the hierarchy of controls that we go, the less we have to rely on our, our human beings to effectively save the day every day, and, and we have better control over the brain-centered hazards higher up on the hierarchy. So having effective life-saving rules, uh, doing highly effective uh, pre-task uh, risk assessments is also really important because combined you know, breakdowns in life-saving rules and breakdowns in pre-task risk assessments can account for up to 72% of all the fatalities, and there are some, some behavioral uh, aspects uh, built into those failures as well. And so, uh, Rashi, can you uh, finish out the, uh, the Swiss cheese model here? Absolutely. So the building and uh, building individual and team capabilities, it's really thinking through applying brain-centric skills. So what are those? Those are skills that incorporate the neuroscience around the seven brain-centered hazards and, and really share with people what those mean and, and how they can, they, can, uh, they can manifest in the daily work. So teaching people, look, when are they going to be prone to these fast brain behaviors? 
When, uh, when are they going to be challenged by their memory system? When are all of these essentially things are going to be, are they're going to be tasked with and what they mean from, from and how they manifest into the work and providing them methods to overcome this. So we know those, those challenges are significant. We know that for a lot of them, it'll cause them to make errors. So what we need to do is, is really teach people and provide them the owner's manual. Essentially, it's teaching them how their brain works. A lot of people don't recognize that, don't know that. They don't know, for, for instance, what happens when they work X number of, of consecutive days. Um, they don't know what happens when, what from a brain level when they're experiencing stress and urgency. It's really teaching people and building their capability and sharing with them tools on how they can overcome those. So, for instance, if they know they, they are the way the brain, human brain sees, they, we teach people typically how to see both broader and deeper. Resilience is preparing individuals and teams to reduce the impact of an incident. So after an incident has occurred, how do you really create a resilient workforce? Um, and so all of these things essentially are ways to, to lower the impact and, and, and prevent a, a serious injury and fatality incident. Now, what, we, what we're going to ask you guys to do and the mission for you guys is really for the next 25 incidents you investigate, conduct the following. Determine whether there was serious injury and fatality exposure that was present. And Don shared with you guys some fantastic examples of how he's seen these manifest in, in his many years of experience. Determine if any brain-centered hazards were also present. And if yes, which ones were they? How did they contribute? Uh, last second, uh, the third point there is evaluate the effectiveness of your controls. How effective were they? Did you have controls in place? Where, where do you have sort of the... This, the mechanism for preventing these things and create a mitigation strategy for each one of those 25. This will help you sort of think through how both the combination of the brain-centered hazard as well as the SIF exposure and, and really get you to start thinking critically about, about both of those things. All right, Barry, I, I, I believe it's over to you. I don't know if we have time for questions. We do. We have a little bit of time here. We want to thank you, Don and, and Rajni, for your work today. Thanks for sharing your, your insights and your expertise. Um, I wanted to let folks know that before we start the Q&A, I want to remind everyone about the evaluation survey that we're asking you to complete today. And the survey should be appearing on your screen right now. Your input is really important to us because it does help us improve our future webcasts. If you don't see the evaluation survey on your screen, please turn off your pop-up blocker. Uh, you may also access the survey by clicking on the survey button near the lower right part of your screen. Now, we've got time to sneak in a couple questions here. Um, I wanted to ask you both, first of all, um, we got a great question from Chase who says, um, in regard to newer employees, how do you get them to break social think and create a sense of empowerment that it's okay to speak up and ask questions? That's a fantastic question, Barry. So all of it has to do with, a lot of it has to do with the culture that they come into. So I know in, in, in a previous employer, in a previous workplace that I was working in, uh, when I first joined there, I was basically told, look, for the first, uh, for the first year, you basically don't say anything. You're just, you're just really trying to learn. Well, that kind of organization, you can, I can, you can be sure that people will, will fall into that that sort of culture. So I think it's looking at the culture first off. 
second, it's really telling people and, and demonstrating, look, in, in meetings, people are, are speaking up and, and people are taking, more importantly, their leaders are taking on board their feedback. They're doing something with it. And it's, it's evident through their body language. It's evident through how they communicate. So it's um, a lot to do with sort of the culture, the way people are communicating, and, so, and the combination of all of that. So in, in the organizations that I work with, the most effective way is, is kind of really uh, empowering people, but then showing them that, that their, their voice and their opinion does matter. Great. We've got time to sneak one more question in here. Um, we have a, a question from our audience member who asks uh, if we conduct an, an accident investigation and we find out that the cause was one of the seven uh, items that we've talked about today. How do you document the cause and, and are these items well known throughout the safety world? So the seven brain-centered hazards, uh, I, um, oh, sorry, you want to answer this one, Don? No, no, you have it. Okay, so I was going to say the, the seven brain-centered hazards, those are the lens through which we at DECRA look at look at incidents. So when incidents come through, and, and even from a, a SIS perspective, um, is it well-known throughout the safety industry? I, I, don't, um, I, I don't know how, how well-known it is, but we certainly try to, try to teach people that, look, if you don't, you're not looking at this and you're sort of looking at it from a human, human error perspective and saying, look, it's all human error related, so there's nothing that we can do about it. Well, you're selling yourself short, and the organization is as well. So these seven are really and are are what you need to understand and take hold of. Yeah, and I would just add, like, you know, these, Go ahead, Don. They're not they're these, these seven brain-centered hazards are not well known in the uh, safety profession, and they are a significantly better granular look at human error as answering the question of why people make mistakes. When you do an incident investigation. Uh, I would also suggest that you will be finding multiple root causes. Very rarely will you ever find a singular root cause. There are usually multiple contributing factors and multiple uh, root causes involved. Excellent. Well, thank you, Don. Thank you, Rajni. Unfortunately, we have run out of time today. I'm sorry we didn't get to everyone's questions, but all of today's unanswered questions will be forwarded along to our speakers. Uh, once again, I hope you take the time to fill out the evaluation survey that is on your screen and give us your feedback. From our team here at the National Safety Council, which is working remotely during this time, we hope you and your families are all safe and healthy amid COVID-19. Uh, that ends today's Safety and Health Magazine webcast. I'd like to thank our speakers today, Don Martin and Rajni Walia, and I'd like to thank the entire team at DICRA OSR and all of you who listened in today. Thanks, everyone, and have a safe day.